Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining us on Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. So can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure. My name is Tiffany Mara, and I received my master's and PhD both from the University of Michigan and the School of Education. Uh, my role currently at the University of Michigan is I am the director at the Center for the Education of Women, now known as CEW Plus, to denote that we are open and available, our services are open and available to anyone in our community. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, I went to school at UC Irvine, and um, my career has been a, a series of encounters with amazing women who have prompted me to what I call put my hat in the ring at times when I wouldn't have considered. And so at UC Irvine, it started with U of M mentors. Um, at actually UC Irvine, I met a graduate student recruiter from the School of Education um, here at U of M, um, who I happened to stop at the booth on my way to my, my job at the library. And her name was Pat Natale, she's since passed. Um, but I met her, uh, when I was probably a sophomore or junior, and I wrote my name down as quickly as I could on a slip of paper and kept going on my way to the library. And I said, oh, you know, I'll re be in touch. She emailed me and uh, stayed in touch with me until I graduated. And when I became a senior, she says, when are you going to put your uh, application into the University of Michigan? And I said, oh, like you were serious. Like, okay, I'll do it. And it was because of Pat that I actually followed through on it and applied to U of M, decided to come here uh, for graduate school. So I started with my master's and then went back to California. Pat called me again after I'd gone back to California. And so, Tiffany, we'd love to have you back at U of M for your PhD. Um, would you be willing to come down? We sort of pushed. And so um, she was great and kept in touch with me. And, um, you know, as a recruiter, it wasn't just about getting me there, but it was about keeping me there. And she was always intentional about reaching out to me and checking in and how I was doing, which you wouldn't expect from a person whose job it is to just get you to the university. Uh, so that was really great. And I always found her as a good kind of person to go to in times of distress. So, you know, and Kat was the first in a many, a long line of women who encouraged me to do stuff. Uh, Abby Stewart, Pat Gurn, um, Melissa Pete, uh, Kate Davey. I mean, just an amazing, strong batch of women who made me believe in myself more than I did at the time. So to take different opportunities. What a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and in what areas does your research focus? Yeah, so when I came to the university, um, like I mentioned, uh, when I was at UC Irvine, I worked in the library. And um, this might be a long and windy story, but I'll do my best to truncate it. But I worked in the library. Uh, they had opened a computer lab. It was a Mac and Apple lab. And this was in the uh, mid to late 90s when computers were just coming in. So it's pretty novel to have a computer lab. They had a lot of computer classes, and I took some of them. Um, but I ended up in the, li in the library's computer lab, and my job was to check people in, check people out. So I'd take their ID cards, I'd put it into a little, you know, physical slot on the wall, and then, you know, tell them, okay, you can go use computer number four, or you can go use computer seven. And that was my job. And sitting next to me were the computer support people who all happened to be men. And uh, we had a lot of people coming into the, to the computer lab to utilize the computers, most of them which were men. And it readily became apparent to me that something was happening here where women weren't engaging with computers like the men were. We had 
email that was done through Telnet, which is an old, like very DOS-based version of email. Nothing graphical or fun about it. It was all very manual and hard to get in and hard to find stuff. But I just noticed this pattern of uh, who was attracted to the new technology, these new shiny objects called computers. Who were the people supporting the people? They were all men in the computer lab. And it made me realize like there's a huge disadvantage here. Something is not attracting women into this new field that was quickly emerging. And um, so I decided to focus my dissertation on how there might become a gender gap in, in computer science. And with this new emergence of technology, it was clear from the beginning with Bill Gates and everybody else that this was gonna be a booming, really hot field with good pay. And so why weren't women engaging in this field? So my master's degree was focused on uh, messaging through what were some early software programs that came out uh, to girls. Um, you know, most of the software programs were targeting middle school girls. So it was analysis of software programs at the time and what were the underlying messages and signals that were being sent to middle school girls through these software programs. The general trends of uh, be kind, be nice, you should be helping other people. Um, be on the lookout for the needs of others and tend to them. And this was a general pattern. It didn't matter whether it was Mattel or Activision. It didn't matter what computer software program was. If it had a girl on the cover, it had these messages embedded. Um, that led to my PhD, which was looking at um, how we could assist undergraduate female students to consider STEM field, science, technology, engineering, math, as a part of their career choices. Um, you know, the gender gap, it, it really got bad. Um, and it still isn't, uh, there isn't parity yet, but um, thinking about what could we do to make uh, technology, science, engineering, something that was approachable or inviting to women. And so how could we turn it into a project-based model where through social issues, through justice issues, we could turn technology into something that was just beyond a tool for developing new things and new software programs, but it could be used for the purpose of good. And so trying to draw on uh, the nurturing uh, more, some of the patterns from the early software programs, but empowering women at the same time to do the developing themselves, but for this new purpose. And uh, so that was the focus of my dissertation. Um, I taught a class that was cross-listed in women's studies and psychology with Abby Stewart and uh, taught uh, undergraduate women in psych and women's studies how to develop websites, how to create JavaScript programs for girls, that were beyond what we were seeing in the marketplace um, and then followed them a bit to see where they ended up. And some of the, you know, some of the really fun emails were the Dr. Mara, I'm now working at Google. And like this was in the 90s, the early 2000s when, you know, that was a really big thing for them to consider as a part of their career choice. And so, you know, that's the fun stuff. And even today, I'll receive emails, you know, I got my partner is actually working with a woman at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute who was in one of my classes and, you know, meeting her again and hearing her story of what, how she got to where she is. You know, that's the really cool part about teaching and about the research. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about the work of the Center for Education of Women um, or the CEW Plus? Yeah, um, our focus is on supporting uh, non-traditional students at U of M and really figuring out ways to uh, help them better understand their goals and values um, and then help them reach them, reach the potential. So that could be through career and education counseling. It could be through scholarships and fellowships. It could be through emergency funds. 
there are a vast number of things that we offer at the center uh, to try and work to that same purpose. Um, the work at the center, we're very interesting in that we have very diverse staff, um, social workers, mixing with program managers, working with development staff and marketing and communications, which brings this very diverse lens to the work about how we can approach the same challenge. And so through all of our different modes of communication, programming events, we're trying to push out the same message, but trying in multiple varied ways so that we're approachable to, to more individuals. And can you tell me a bit more about the different types of workshops, events, or counseling that the center offers and who these services are offered to? Sure. Yeah, we're fortunate in that we have uh, development funds, thanks to donors in our community, um, who allow us to provide our, our services, our programs, our workshops, events, our counseling services even, to people in the broader community. Uh, so through the Connie Kinnear a counseling fund, we're able to offer counseling services to people in the, in the greater Ann Arbor Union community, um, which is something that's unique at the university to have that split service model with both campus members and uh, community members. Our workshops and events, um, they're varied in focus. So our counselors will typically, who are all licensed social workers, they'll typically offer um, uh, workshops and events that are more focused in career and educational growth or value alignment, goal alignment, and uh, you know that build on top of the counseling services that they're providing. Um, our program managing staff, uh, they're more focused on sense of belonging, on advocacy for others or advocate, advocacy for self. Um, as an example, um, we recently hired uh, Dr. Liz DeBetta um, to CEW, who's focused on advocacy work, which is a returning appointment uh, to CEW that we've had in the past, but are just finally able to bring it back and her goal this summer is to offer an advocacy activism incubator. So that way students, staff, faculty, community members can learn strategies for how to become activists or how to become advocates and meet them where they're at in their process of advocacy work. So that's just one example of, of the type of thing that program managers will do. Uh, we have a person who's dedicated to supporting our scholars and fellows. One of our goals there is to create a scholar community where they really feel a sense of belonging among their peers within the CEW scholar and fellow community. And so she'll do things, again, to build a sense of belonging, like bring them together for a dinner, um, engage them in a common topic that's of interest at the time. You know, other things like teaching, uh, having individuals teach each other about different skills that they have or different research that they're doing. And so it's a whole combination of really interesting work all built around a building sense of belonging, make sure people feel like they belong at U of M. And one thing that we hear often is that students sometimes feel like based on their identities, their intersectional identities, that they might be the only one at U of M. And there's this sense of loneliness that washes over them or aloneness. And so part of what we do also through our words and through our actions is to make sure that people know that there are other people who are in similar circumstances, not the same circumstances, but in similar circumstances, like raising a child while going to school, um, caring for a disabled uh, sibling while going to school, um, having been an older returner to school. All of those things are on our campus, but they're kind of spoken and talked about identities that we try and expose and build this awareness around so that they have more support. Thank you. And March is Women's History Month. What does Women's History Month mean to you? That's a good question. Um, you know, Women's History Month, 
you know, there's the big names that we know about, right? There's the Elizabeth Cady Sands, the Sister of Truths. There's the uh, Hillary Clintons, the Kamala Harris's, right? And those are the people who are publicized and talked about regularly. And then there are all these other folks who are doing things in their communities, who are advocating for change, who are the first to be a CEO in a company, who are role models for people to follow after and making it possible for other people to see sightlines to careers, opportunities, or ways to behaving in the world that may not have been considered in the past. And those are the stories that really fascinate me. It's those people who are quietly doing the work to create change in their community, in their household, in their business, um, and doing it quietly, but having a huge impact at whatever level of impact that they're looking at, level of community, size of community. So that's what it means to me. And like, I think about like, my mom, my grandma, and you know, that's, that's really where the impact I think is at the individual level. When you ask people who have the biggest impact on them, they're often gonna point to a family member often a parent. And in my own life, like I look at my mom, I look at my grandma and how much they fought within their own family structure, within, you know, as a child in a family, as a leader in a family, um, to demonstrate how what's possible isn't within the scope of what's currently possible, but what's possible is what you make possible. And by modeling that and then showing me that that, you know, that whatever I wanted to do, you know, I shouldn't just pass it up because I didn't think it was for me. And it falls with what I started with of just a long line of women who, you know, encouraged me to go and do stuff um, when I might not have believed in myself. Thank you. Why is it important that we recognize or celebrate Women's History Month? Do you have any recommendations or ways in which people can learn more about women's history? There are so many untold stories of change that have happened in the U.S. Um, you know, based on race, based on gender, based on abolitionists, uh, suffragists, all of that, we, like I said before, we know the big names. We know the people who have been publicized, whose stories are broadly told. Um, but there are often hidden stories behind that. And that too is really interesting to me. If you look at Rosa Parks, you know, she was on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. She refused to sit me back and rest. That's only one piece of her story. And it's the piece that people can commonly tell over and over again. But if people looked more closely at her, what was her role in the civil rights movement broadly before she's got on that bus? What was her role with Martin Luther King in that era that people often don't know? And to really understand the path that individual women made to create change, that it's not just an instance, that it's not just a moment in time, but it's often a thoughtful career choice that might not be paid and under underappreciated. So, you know, some names that I would rattle off would be, um, you know, thinking back to even 1776, um, when she told, and I'm gonna provide a quote here, um, Abigail, Abigail Adams told her husband who later became president, John Adams, um, he reminded, she reminded John Adams, remember the ladies and be generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we're not determined to foment a rebellion and we'll not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That was in 1776. And so women have been fighting for more rights, more equity for a really long time. And, you know, starting there, but then thinking about all the other people like Sojourner Truth 
an abolitionist, a women's rights activist, Jeanette Rankin of Montana, who became the first woman elected to Congress as a member of the House of Representatives, Amelia Earhart, who has a long history before the flight that she made across the Atlantic, um, Rosa Parks, like I mentioned before, um, reading her full story and not just the publicized version of the bus incident, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her long history as a, as a lawyer before she was a Supreme Court justice to enact policies and to turn down policies to push for gender equity. Um, you know, and then there are a whole host of politicians who have done a lot of good for gender equity in the U.S. Geraldine Ferrara, Janet Reno, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, Michelle Obama, Nancy Pelosi, and of course our current VP, Kamala Harris. And so, you know, all of these are names. If you don't, if people aren't aware of their history, if they aren't aware of their full story, look them up. There are plenty of, you know, history channels, specials on each of these women. There are movies about individuals like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm pretty sure there are at least three or four movies out about her and her more lengthy history rather than just um, her time as a Supreme Court justice. I, there's so much good media out there about these individuals, podcasts, books. I mean, there's plenty of media to consume to learn more about just these individuals. But what I would suggest, you know, for, for any, any of us is to talk to our, talk to our elders, our female elders, whether it's an aunt, an uncle, sibling, and just learn about their history. And my grandma, she started a restaurant in, in uh, Central California, in Tulare, California, um, with her husband. It was a Chinese-American truck stop. So they served Chinese food in a place where there are only two Chinese families. And they sold diner food to truckers coming through. And we don't know the impact of that work, but I'm guessing in that area, they introduced Chinese food to a whole population of people who had never tried it before. That's pretty remarkable. She raised a whole lot of kids at the same time, including her mom, um, and you know was always there to support the family um, whenever we needed her. And so it's things like that that we can learn a lot even from our own immediate systems of support and to take the time to listen and to capture them and share them broadly. We don't share a snippet on you know Facebook that's gonna not, that's a passing phase, but share the stories of the people that we love because those are the things that we'll be able to look back on later and really remind us about our heritage and the strength that women had to have when we were growing up to change where we're at today. Thank you. As the podcast comes to a close, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? What I would say is, you know, give grace and gratitude to the people who came before in whatever form makes sense to you. Because they had, a, as women uh, in the U.S. and internationally, the path is much easier for them than it is for us today. And to recognize that and appreciate the work that they put in so that we could become CEOs, we can we could be considered a vice president, we could be considered a presidential candidate, we could be considered to be a CEO of a major corporation. Like while we still aren't at parity in those areas, we're a lot better than we were 50 years ago. We're a lot better than we were 100 years ago, and that the change had to be incremental. And the behaviors of women before us give gratitude to that and give grace to them for their decision making because I can't imagine how hard it was for them that they led through. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute honor to talk with you today and learn from you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on your show. 
Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.